Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. My name is Trina Ramsey and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora. This is our third show tonight, and we are going to be talking about regressive immigration tactics. The title is Under Siege, Regressive Immigration Tactics. So I'll start off by telling you a little bit about the Power Network, the revolution, the Power Network and why we're here, and then I'll pass it on to Ange, who will tell you a little bit more about the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora and what this platform is all about. We decided sometime last year, this is a sister station to Life Coach Radio Networks, which is part of my role. I've been on Life Coach Radio Networks for three years now, and I have a show on the network. But over time, we started to get into issues related to diversity, related to unity, related to politics. And we decided to just launch a whole new station to devote to that, and we decided to call it the Power Network, and it's an acronym. It stands for Peace, One Love, Wisdom, Empowerment, and Revolution. And we launched on Inauguration Day with a soft launch the day before with a show on the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora focused on Michelle Obama. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Ange, who will talk a little bit more about the Revolutionary Sisters and what we are all about. Thank you so much, Trina. So uh, as Trina mentioned, we are the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora. We are black and brown sisters coming together to discuss topical issues of race, social and economic justice, gender equality, and everything in between. Our show airs every third Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern we are now in Eastern Daylight Time, uh, but it's Eastern Time. And so we truly welcome all of the listeners uh, for listening in and for supporting our show, the third show. So as uh, Trina mentioned, we've had two shows. One was on Michelle Obama. We just did some reflections on her. We honored her. Uh, we talked about everything from her smarts to clothing, hair, trolling, questioning the legitimacy of her husband, the birth of movement, and most especially body image. Uh, and so we hope you'll go back and listen to those that show. And then the second show we did was on push-outs, black and brown girls in the school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, in, in specifically, we talked about the implicit and explicit biases of, as uh, Q would say, the three tropes that are used as a lens in which we view black women. Uh, the sexual mammy caretaker, the, I'm sorry, the asexual mammy or caretaker, the Jezebel, which is a hypersexualized woman, and the sapphire is the angry black woman. I don't think I fit into any of those categories. I'm going to have to figure out what kind of woman am I. I don't You're fit into a those troops. And in the end, we talked about mentoring uh, young black and brown girls and hiring them, especially for those of us who are in positions that we are able to hire, uh, and giving young girls a different uh, tape in which to hear in their heads that everything they do, they are enough, that there's nothing wrong with them, 
and uh, we ended with just some really positive steps that people can take to truly try to get involved with young black and brown girls. So our next show, I just want to give a plug for that, is on Thursday, April 20th, and it is entitled, It's All About Me, Reflections on Self-Care from a Recovering Superwoman. So we hope you will listen in and dial in on that. Um, And then without further ado, we're going to turn the show over to Maritza, who is going to host this wonderful hour discussion on immigration. So I will turn it over to you. And again, if you want to dial in, please dial 619-924-0980. Thank you. And with that, I will turn it over to Maritza. All right. Well, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. My name is Maritza. I'm a criminal justice reformer here in Washington, D.C., Um, When I was asked to host this show, I jumped at the opportunity because immigration is something that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, As a first-generation American, daughter of immigrants, proud daughter of immigrants, I think that this topic is really important, and I'm glad that we have a chance to um, dive into immigration policy in this hour. Um, The first thing I wanted to really share with you all is just that immigration law is wildly complex. And we have such a large history um, with problematic immigration laws in this country that I, I really think we would need more than an hour to hit everything. But just to highlight some patterns that we've, we've, seen, um, we've seen really since the inception of this country, um, we've seen that immigration laws have been used to exploit the labor of low-income people of color. We've, we've, seen, we've seen this through programs like the Bracero program, which brought Mexican laborers over to the U.S. to work, but with people never got a path to citizenship. We've also seen that um, immigration laws have been influenced in times of war. Um, so, for example, there was Japanese-American internment during World War II, and right now we're seeing the Muslim ban. Um, Today's immigration law favors high-skilled immigrants over low-skilled immigrants, um, just like it always has, and it also favors some countries over others. Um, For example, people from Mexico often have to wait for more than a decade before being able to come to this country legally. Uh, For unmarried sons and daughters of U.S. citizens, for example, the wait can be over 21 years. Um, Because of the severe economic hardship and or violence in a lot of these countries, um, including gender-based violence, Many immigrants uh, are forced to flee. There's, there's really no choice for a lot of folks. And in fact, a lot of these conditions are directly linked to terrible uh, U.S. policies. Um, and on that note, I actually wanted to hand it over to one of our guests, um, Letitia, if you could talk a little bit about uh, some U.S. policies that have affected some of the folks that you work with and also maybe t- tell the audience a little bit about your work. Uh, thank you, Maritza. Uh-huh. Thank you uh, for having me on this evening. My name is Leticia Corona. I am an immigration attorney. I practice removal defense in the D.C. area. Um, the vast majority of my clients at our firm are Central Americans, um, asylees, uh, refugees, um, victims, uh, or rather survivors, really, survivors of uh, trauma, violence, um, any number of the drivers um, that cause people to come to the United States. And tying in a little bit into what Marita was saying about the history of our immigration laws, the, our immigration laws to some extent have actually caused this recent influx of Central Americans fleeing 
Um, I'm sure many have heard that uh, there was a large influx of, of women and children that came in 2014, ever-growing. Uh, these, these folks are fleeing uh, tremendous violence at the hands of transnational criminal, criminal gangs. Um, these gangs, the MS-13 you may have heard of, the 18th Street Gang, these are actually transnational criminal organizations. These are not street gangs. And uh, their roots uh, are actually a result of uh, immigration law that was passed during the Clinton administration the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, um, that caused uh, a number of criminal aliens to be deported. Now, these criminal aliens at the time were not normal criminals, your, your average criminal. No, they were actually gang members, gang members uh, who uh, were from the Los Angeles area. These gangs had actually sprouted in retaliation of already well-founded gangs, uh, Mexican uh, youth. Had, had established back in the 60s. So when these um, gang members uh, were deported, mostly Salvadoran, went back to Central America, Central America um, was recovering from civil war, very destabilized, and these, these gangs sprouted, and they're now, you know, really, as I, as I mentioned, transnational criminal organizations. And is the violence at the hands of these gangs and the instability of the government of El Salvador and the other countries in the, national, in the Northern Triangle um, that, are, that are pushing these women and children to flee, seeking refuge and asylum in the United States. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. I just want to just interject. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, if you're dialing in, please press 1, and we will connect you. So, again, if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please press 1, and we will dial you in. Yeah, and just to, um, to give you all even more context, although right now it's a very you know intense climate for immigrants, um, it's a very hostile anti-immigrant climate, during the previous administration, we also saw a lot of problematic things happen. Um, in fact, more than 2 million people were deported under the Obama administration, which is how he earned um, the name Deporter-in-Chief, or the, I guess, nickname from the immigrant rights community. And something else to just think about that, you know, although people think about immigration as maybe a Latino issue, immigrants are from all over the world. Um, and it's, you know, it's really important to, like, recognize um, that not everybody has the same immigrant experience. Um, for example, I'm, I'm really excited that somebody from Baji is joining us because, um, you know, I think something that people often fail to discuss is that black immigrants actually face really harsh immigration consequences. They're twice as likely to face deportation due to criminal convictions. Um, they're three times more likely to be detained while their cases are pending. Um, and contrary to what this administration would have you would have you believe, undocumented immigrants actually pay billions in taxes, but we've never had laws that allow them to really be recipients or beneficiaries of um, all the work they put into this country. Um, but that's just a little bit of you know the background um, with with immigration. But I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about the executive orders and perhaps the impact the executive orders are having on immigrant populations in the U.S. today. Uh, so, Lavette, if you wouldn't mind um, sharing with with folks um, who are listening um, your take on the executive orders and how you've seen that play out in your work. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, again, my name is Lavette Thompson. I'm the Atlanta organizer for Black Alliance for Just Immigration, 
and we're a national organization that represents black migrants and African Americans to organize and advocate for racial, social, and economic justice. Um, but many African Americans, um, as well as African immigrants and black immigrants, are very concerned uh, with the executive orders. Um, during the first week, um, the week beginning January 22nd, 2017, President Trump signed a series of executive orders um, pertaining to immigration that will definitely prove destructive to the black immigrant communities. Under the first executive order, the Border Security and Immigration Enforcement Improvement Order, uh, we have seen a lot of media coverage that is focused on the border wall um, and its impact on Mexican Americans, I mean, um, Mexican immigrants. But um, we also know that the border wall will have a huge impact on black immigrants. Um, because of the surge in the Haitian, um, of Haitian refugees, there's been nearly 7,000 Haitians that have entered the U.S. through the southern border um, since last year, and about two to 3,000 remain detained at the border awaiting deportation to catastrophic conditions in Haiti stemming from Hurricane Matthew um, back in the fall, political turmoil, and the devastation caused by the 2010 earthquake um, in which many Haitians um, had never recovered. Um, also, there's been thousands of migrants uh, from Africa who have sought entry at the border last year. Uh, what hasn't been covered um, by the media is right now under this administration is to expand um, this deportation machine uh, by hiring at least um, ten to 15,000 new immigration officers. Um, the order that's calling for building new detention centers um, near the border, um, also um, the, you know, um, Secure Communities Program, uh, which incentivized um, collaboration between local police and ICE. Um, also, the requirement that ICE detain and immediately deport anyone charged for any offense, uh, regardless of whether they've been convicted. So many people think that this and all of these orders only apply to undocumented immigrants, but they also apply to lawful permanent residents. Um, under the, um, the second executive order, enhancing public safety in the interior of the United States order, um, here most of the focus has been um, the provision that punishes sanctuary cities, um, including institutions. And so, um, you know, this under this particular order, you're definitely going to see the biggest impact on black immigrants um, in that it articulates the president's deportation priorities. Um, those include, you know, anyone who's been convicted of any criminal offense, um, those who've been charged with any criminal offense, even in the case um, if it's been unresolved, um, if they've committed any acts that constitute um, a chargeable offense. Um, this order, you know, having its impact on um, African Americans, black immigrants, um, you know, in our communities are are definitely subject to racial profiling, um, over-policing, um, practices like broken window that result in our com communities having a higher likelihood of criminal contact and going through the criminal legal system uh, than any of their counterparts. Um, also, this order, you know, creates or recreates um, another version of broken window policing uh, within the immigration system. And this basically is just giving ICE officers wide discretion to detain and deport anyone that they deem national or national security um, or public safety threat. 
Um, and we know historically that this type of discretion has been used to criminalize black and brown folks. Um, and it also separates families. Um, under the third executive order protecting a nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States, also known as the Muslim Ban, um, it bans um, citizens, citizens from entering into the United States from three African countries, um, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and it also bans citizens from Syria, Iran, and Yemen. Just recently, Iraq was taken off of the list. Um, and this, this, this is for at least 90 days, and it's halted any admission of refugees for at least 120 days. So it's having a huge impact on the Haitian um, refugee surge that we are um, seeing. Um, also, um, there's been a lot of attention that has gone to um, Syrian refugees, but um, from what we have observed, um, many um, refugees and asylees have sought entry, that have sought entry into the U.S. over the last 10 years were black, and about 30% of those um, of Muslims in the U.S. identify as black. Um, so... The black Muslim um, immigrants, uh, black Muslim immigrants and refugees um, have reported um, an increase in harassment also over the um, past few months. Yeah, I think that's one of the more alarming trends is um, we've, we've just seen hate crimes being reported like we've never mm -hmm. seen before. Um, I, I would hope that um, if you all have a minute, folks who are listening, that you check out the Southern Poverty Law Center's track on this. Um, they've done a good job of tracking hate crimes across the country. Um, and it's, you know, with creating anti-immigrant sentiment in this country, the people who do feel the brunt of it are people of color in this country, because you can't tell someone's immigration status simply by looking at them, but it's really made people of color just experience um, even more so feeling like an outsider in one's own country. Some. Some consequences that I wanted to talk about, I, because I think this isn't, we don't hear enough of this um, in the media, are just the consequences that these immigration policies have in the lives of people, in the lives of families, in the lives of immigrant families. You know, we hear that immigrants contribute to the economy, and yes, that is great, and yes, we will suffer economically if we deport people, not only is that costly, but then we're deporting people who are working and, um, you know, holding up our economy. But we also will see psychological and emotional consequences in folks who are being detained, deported, and families that are being torn apart. And that's one of the more alarming things to me. I can't tell you how many stories I've read since these orders were handed down of people just feeling even more miserable, um, being depressed. We've heard stories of people committing suicide after being detained. People don't talk about those consequences enough. This is a very traumatizing experience for people. It's it's also just a really psychologically very tough thing to have to be in fear of deportation every day. On the um, on the subject actually of trauma, Leticia, I was hoping that you could share some about um, a little bit about your work and um, what you what you've been seeing in family detention centers. Um, yes, um, with. Regard to the family detention centers, a lot of folks are just not 
aware that um, family detention centers exist, and I think that that is quite sad. These uh, centers opened under the last administration, and unfortunately, are, there's already a framework in place that uh, the current administration is able to build upon and use to continue to deny uh, asylum seekers and refugees um, access to you know the opportunity to to apply for refuge here in the United States. The uh, family detention centers, there are, are currently three, and I had the privilege of volunteering with uh, a, a large-scale volunteer program that is in place at the Family Detention Center in Dilly, Texas. That is the CARA Pro Bono Project, which is made up of the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, the American Immigration Council, the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services, and the American Immigration Lawyers Association. And what I can tell you from my firsthand experience is that there's no way, shape, form should we be holding toddlers in family detention centers that are very much like prisons, very much jail-like. These women and children are not free to leave. They're behind fences. And these uh, centers are run by the uh, for-profit prison industry uh, the center that I was at, I believe, is run by Core Civic. And while I was there, I, um, you know, I met women from all over the world. Now, the only women and children are housed in these centers. There are, are, are no men. Uh, the oldest boy that I saw there was about 14. I, I don't know. When, when families arrive, they get separated by, by sex and gender and I'm not sure what age the determination is there, but I know that mothers uh, with, with children 14 and under, at least in my experience when I noticed, were, were being housed at the Family Residential Center. Um, this is quite foreign uh, to, to the children, and there's a, a lack of, from what I could see, um, appropriate medical attention and uh, Many of the children just looked terribly ill. Many of them were not eating. The food that they were offered was just foreign to them. Uh, they they had no no interest um, in chicken nuggets and, and the like. Well, is this legal? Can you talk a little bit about the like the legal requirements for family detention centers? And in your experience, are these detention centers meeting those legal requirements? Well, that is actually in litigation. Um, at this point, there is ongoing litigation about whether or not these facilities should have. Um, licenses, whether they should be licensed child care centers in these states uh, in which they're located. That would be Texas and Pennsylvania. Um, as I mentioned, that is ongoing litigation. Uh, what, I, what I can say is that, in my personal opinion, no, we should not be, we should not be housing women and children in this fashion. Uh, I'll be returning next month to volunteer yet again. Uh, the CARA Pro Bono Project offers uh, legal services to the women that are housed there in an effort to help them do what needs to be done to get out of the detention center. It's 100% pro bono. Um, if you do have a moment, please uh, do look up the CARA Pro Bono Project, and you will get much more information about that and, and how you can possibly uh, help in that effort. Can you repeat that? The CARA Pro Bono Project. That's C-A-R-A. Pro bono project. Okay, thank you. That's great. I'm really glad that you talked about the private prison companies too. I think a lot of folks probably don't know that immigrant detention is like largely privatized. Um, so you may recall that um, during the last couple of months of the Obama administration, the DOJ uh, 
put out this memo saying that they would stop contracting with private prisons. So all federal contracts with private prison companies were exclusively for non-citizens who had criminal convictions. They're called car prisons. Um, it was great news when that memo came out because we thought, well, this is great. Like, less attention is always a good thing. Um, but the new attorney general rescinded that memo. Um, this is really unfortunate. Another unfortunate piece is just that the private prison industry is such a powerful entity. They have so many lobbyists. Um, a lot of these lobbyists, you know, it's a revolving door. A lot of them actually work in government. A lot of them run for public office or work for people in public office. With this administration, we know for a fact that people who have worked in the private prison industry now work in the administration. So these are policy advisors. Um, it's basically companies profiting. They make billions and billions in profits every single year, profiting, profiting off of human suffering. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so that's, I mean, it's interesting to, uh, to know that now that the prison industry has, you know, broadened their scope into immigration because we know for years that, you know, the prison boom and the and prisons have, are listed on the stock exchanges. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, we ended slavery in one form and we have continued it in many other forms. So I, I appreciate uh, you guys talking about that. Yeah. Um, Lovett, I was going to ask if you could maybe highlight some ways that the immigration system and the criminal justice system actually parallel one another um, now that we're on this topic of private prison companies. Yeah. So, um, you know, well, what we've noticed is that um, there's definitely this intersection in what's happening within the African-American community as well as within um, – within the black immigrant community around mass incarceration and criminalization. Um, because of these executive orders, uh, more communities of color are being targeted um, and heavily policed, um, much of which we've seen within the African-American community, uh, which is, you know, again, creating this version of broken windows, um, policing that we've been noticing. And because of that, there are more, you know, black immigrants that are being detained um, and held in these detention centers. Also, um, because of that, you've, we've noticed a lot of um, migrants who have been detained also being transferred um, from their, you know, home state or wherever they may be to different locations, which is separating them from their family, separating them from resources, um, and it's oftentimes but can you're you, in remote sorry, areas. Sorry to interrupt you, but could you clarify what broken windows policing is? Sure. So, um, you know, broken windows policing is basically, it's just the over-policing. It's the practicing um, of just sort of targeting um, communities of color um, and, and, and criminalizing um, people of color and, and, and putting them in, into the criminal um, criminal system. Um, they, um, oftentimes, like also just, taking. You know, pardon? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, Levette. I, I was just going to um, interject just a little bit and just say, you know, it's the minor things that become that they're trying to enforce. The minor little right. things that happen in communities um, because they feel like if you take care of the minor things, then the bigger things don't occur. 
Hi, this is Q, your friendly, lovable, um, lovable, huggable, angry black woman. And as one who grew up under the policing strategies put forth by Giuliani and his evil ilk, I understand broken windows quite um, intimately. And really, if we think about it, um, it is merely an extension of the black codes, which is an extension of slavery and ways to criminalize and control and ex- and exercise dominion and control over the black and brown bodies. And so when you think about bodies in terms of being products that we can use to exploit and think about in terms of commodities, all we're doing is extending our the, the racialized nature of our economic system and an immigration system in this country, and we're seeing it manifest now with the criminalization of black and brown bodies um, through the immigration system. So I just wanted to interject that um, into the conversation and to remind us all of the history and the legacy and how it manifests and changes um, in terms of time. So... I don't trust broken windows because that's no different than saying three people, um, three people of color standing together makes a gang, mm-hmm. and that gang is a threat to security and safety. And really, all it is are people exercising their autonomy to engage with each other under the First Amendment. And Q is stepping out now. <laughs> 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 And then I also wanted to um, just kind of add that um, some of those minor offenses um, could be like, you know, marijuana possession that a lot of people are trying to decriminalize um, as well. So just minor infractions that could, you know, fall under that um, broken windows policing. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've we've even heard stories of folks um, having traffic violations and then being put into removal proceedings because of that. Um, so it's definitely a, mm-hmm. a new level that we're dealing with here. Um, it's a new mm-hmm. level of evil. A new level of evil, that's for sure. And you know, if you <laughs> look at the, yeah, and if you look at the executive orders, I'm glad that you talked about those earlier. You know, a lot of people say that everyone's a priority, and if you read the language, it sure sounds like it. The language says anybody who has been convicted of a criminal offense has been charged with a criminal offense where such charge has not been resolved or committed acts that constitute a chargeable criminal offense are priorities for deportation. And we're not just talking about, you know, people who are um, undocumented. If you're a legal permanent resident and if you get put into the criminal legal system, you will likely be deported as well. Um, you know, that's that's always been the case, and it's, it's even more dangerous now for everyone who is not a citizen. If I, this is uh, Tisha, if I may jump in there um, as a removal defense attorney, um, I think we have two sort of separate groups of uh, immigrants. We have those on the inside of the border and those on the outside of the border. And with regard to the Muslim ban, I'm, I'm, I understand that, but I'm stepping outside of that. And I want to hearken back to something Lovette said earlier about African migrants. African migrants in sp- specifically are being ostracized and denied entry at the border. They've presented themselves mm-hmm. en masse at the border mm-hmm. with Mexico and the United States, much around Tijuana. And mm-hmm. anecdotal story after anecdotal story from my colleagues among the immigration bar and colleagues of mine on the ground there in Tijuana and also on this side of the border, that, that, that African migrants from Haiti and Africa and other countries are being told, there is no asylum here for you. You're not welcome to apply for that here and turned away. 
Mexican authorities are doing what they can, but the reality is that we do treat immigrants differently because of the color of their skin and point. Thank you for saying that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You know, it, we do we do treat African migrants quite differently. And you know, when I was in the uh, you know Dili detention center, one of the issues I ran into with a number of immigrants from African countries in Haiti is the inability to communicate. You know, even though we had uh, you know access to interpreters over the phone, it's, can you imagine trying to explain to a complete stranger uh, in your language with a translator you've never met over the phone about some horrific happenstance? that could have happened to you, uh, your mm-hmm. child was molested, or, you know, something just, just horrific and trying to communicate in that way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really difficult. It's, it's very hard to tra- traverse uh, our, our nation's uh, immigration system and to apply in the legal fashion that this administration keeps touting. Mm-hmm. Oh, come legally. Mm-hmm. Well, we're trying, but it's right. quite difficult when we, c- we get here and we can't even apply. We're, we're told that there is no asylum yeah. here for you. The bar keeps moving. Mm-hmm. It does. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Who are dialing in, if you would like to make a comment or ask a question, please press 1. Uh, those who are listening in online, if you would like to call in, the number is 619-924-0980. And again, if you would like to make a comment or ask a question, please press 1 on your keypad and we will patch you in. We have a caller. We do have a caller. We have a caller with the 703 area code, uh, phone number 475. So we're going to put your mic on, and um, that's the red button. Yep. And uh, you're live. What's your name and where are you calling from? My name is Eli from Virginia. Uh, thanks for letting me uh, ask some questions and make a comment, if you will. Um, what do you ladies think about the uh, Obamas and um attack on Cuban immigrants where he said that they were no longer welcome in the United States if they would be sent back if they were caught uh, entering the country. Your question is what what do we think about Obama's policy on Cubans if they were caught they Absolutely. would be sent back to Cuba? Okay. In the okay. past, prior to Obama's, uh, I believe it was an executive order, that they, Cubans were welcome in the United States as refugees. Uh, escaping a tyrannical government in Cuba. And uh, Obama canceled that policy where it was a uh, catch and return to Cuba. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, given that we're functioning under a new administration, we've decided that we want to look forward and not backwards in terms of figuring out how to best create an immigration policy or advocate for an immigration policy that takes into account the full diaspora of people who are looking for safety and security within this country. But we greatly appreciate your comment. Ciao, ciao. Um, But moving forward from there, one thing that was mentioned earlier, and I talked about it a little bit, is that even though the players may change, the names remain the same, but sometimes that turns around. Um, In terms of talking about private Um, privately owned corrections organizations and companies, Um, Leticia mentioned Civic Corrections, but that formerly was known as Corrections Corporations of America, an organization which has been housing um, prisoners both in the federal system and the state system and now in the immigration system 
throughout the country. And given the fact that Secretary, I'm sorry, Sessions has decided that we are not going to cancel the contracts with private um, prison facilities, it's, we all have to wonder who is actually going to fill those facilities, and many times we think about them in terms of illegal immigrants. So would we mind exploring that a little bit and talking about it? Yes. Um, we do have another caller. Okay, cool. So we'll go to the next we, Yeah, we'll go to the next caller. So, Q, please, please help us remember to come back to that topic. So we have a caller from 386 area code with number 446, putting your mic on. What's your name and where are you calling from? Oh, my name is Alberto Jones, and I'm calling from Palm Coast, Florida. Um, the reason Thanks for I, calling in. Oh, you're very welcome, and I'm honored to be here. I just wanted to answer my fellow Cuban that somehow uh, tried to divert the important issue that has been discussed with the Cuban preference above everyone that we enjoyed for 54 years. So please, um, if there's any other Cuban who comes in with this diversionist idea uh, or comment, I, I would strongly suggest um, we look back to the preferential uh, treatment that we have enjoyed for half a century without ever complaining, and now they are trying to victimize Obama for stopping what has been done to everyone else. Thank you very much. Thank you for Thank calling you. in. Thanks for your comments. Okay, Q, back to you. Oh, yeah, no, we were talking about the evolution of CCA and all things that come out of that organization in terms of restricting the liberty of people and the way in which they put profit margins against safety, security, health, and well-being of the people they're housing. That was not an opinion. That was just a fact. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and I think um, <laughs> I think your your point holds true too. That if we're building these facilities, they're going to be filled, um, and that's right. I mean, it's an issue of you know supply and demand. Right. If we build the supply, then we have to figure out how to meet the demand. Right. And we're looking at an administration that decided that they're going to create both the supply and demand, as opposed to holding steady with what the previous administration decided, which was. There is not actually a cost-benefit um, to maintaining contracts with private facilities, um, both in terms of physical well-being and financial well-being. But I will leave that to you all to discuss, and I'll discuss James Baldwin later. So what's interesting, though, is that private prison companies have actually started um, engaging in more business rather than just building facilities and, like, housing people in these facilities because they're business people and they want to make sure that, um, especially during the last administration, we saw criminal justice reform action. I think they were trying to think of ways that they could still meet um, profit margins and make money. And one of those ways was alternatives to detention. So this means strapping ankle monitors on people who are deemed not to be safety threats, but you know, that's all very costly. And ultimately, the people who are profiting are still these private prison companies who are responsible for the alternative to, to detention programs. So I guess I bring that up because I've been struggling as an advocate myself on whether or not I agree with alternatives to detention because I think it's great that people aren't housed in facilities. That's always a good thing. But I don't like that, 
you know, they're still they're still under the control of the government and private prison companies. Letitia, do you have some thoughts on that? Because I, you know, all the cases I've seen actually are are mothers, right? There are a couple of issues there. Um, the individuals who are released uh, by ICE and CBP, that being, you know, Immigration Customs Enforcement and Customs Border Patrol, these individuals are are many times released with an ankle monitor, an ankle bracelet. Um, and are monitored with uh, weekly check-ins over the phone or someone may come to your home or what have you. And then usually over time, as it's, as it's seen that the person is complying and showing up for immigration court and everything, they will remove the ankle monitors. And that I often see uh, place on women, women who um, sometimes are released out on bond from the uh, family detention centers. Um, I do also see that sometimes for immigrants who are already in the United States were maybe caught during a traffic stop and they may be put on an ankle monitor. The low-hanging fruit and the individuals who really are not hardcore criminals, I mean, the individual who may have driving without a license, perhaps, on their record. Now, on the other hand, we have uh, the private, okay, the private bail bonds companies that are putting ankle monitors on individuals who want to get out on bond but cannot afford the bond that the immigration court places on them. So what these companies do, and the private companies, I know Libre Bay Nexus is one of uh, the big names out there. Uh, we'll put this ankle monitor on the person, but it's really usury. The, the, the amount that they are charging these folks is, is quite high. Uh, from what I understand, it's $400 a month just for the price of the monitor that they put you on. What? And none of that money goes towards the bottom line of your bond uh, that you paid to get released from immigration. So there, there are a couple of issues there. There's, there's the private prison complex, then there is also, um, you know, when, when, when the United States government, you know, works with these organizations to monitor those who are released on the alternatives to detention program. And then, again, also another issue with your private bail bondsman companies and the like putting these ankle monitors on. So it's all really complex, and there are immigrants that are caught up in each and every type of situation. Yeah. Thank you for breaking that down. Um, it, yeah, it's, it, it is a, really, a whole industry, really. Um, Levitt, did you want to add anything to that? Um, I just think I want to say that um, it's important also to – you know, pay attention to the location of where some of these private prisons are being relocated. Um, most are being, you know, built in rural areas, uh, which That's really right. discourages people from from getting meaningful uh, representation to stay in the U.S. Um, and oftentimes there's less oversight and accountability um, to how um, immigrants that are being detained in these detention centers are being treated. So I just wanted to lift that up that, you know, it's very important to just sort of pay attention to that because what we're seeing right now as well is that people are being transferred from where they are to these rural detention centers where they're not having access to, you know, lawyers. Um, and it's, it's just it's creating this, this problem where people are unable to get the resources that they need. And oftentimes a lot of the resources that are there are very out of date. So, yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. That's absolutely correct. And another problem with building these facilities in rural areas is that, you know, that's a way that private prison companies actually sell their business, saying we can bring jobs, right? Yeah. Like we can help the right. local economy. And we've seen that on the, mm -hmm. the criminal justice side too. 
Um, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad that you that you lift that that up. Um, I know that you also mentioned legal representation, and I, I don't know if the audience knows this, but um, maybe you can speak to this. But if you're if you're an immigrant in detention, do you have um, the right to have an attorney represent you in any immigration proceedings? You have a right to your own counsel that you provide. There is no counsel provided as if it was uh, a criminal case. No. So like a public defender. Or there, something. No, there is no public mm-hmm. defender. You must pay. And I wanted to follow up a little bit on on the um, two things that were mentioned. One is that the detention centers are purposefully built in areas that deny access to counsel. Yes. For example, Stewart Detention mm-hmm. Center. Stewart Detention Absolutely. Center uh, houses houses adult males. Okay, it's a terrible, Absolutely. terrible place. And there is but one mm-hmm. attorney who has opened up shop there, most recently a colleague of mine, because of the lack of, uh, of access to counsel. Another thing is that, you know, Immigration and Customs Enforcement can transfer uh, individuals into detention centers at a whim. And so you may hire an attorney for your loved one here in D.C. Next thing you know, they call you and tell you they've been transferred to California. They can be transferred two, three, four times. How is the attorney supposed to, you know, keep track of the, of the individual client? It's very difficult. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention is that, yes, these private companies, these prison companies are for-profit, and they sell. They sell to the communities that are desperate for jobs. Right. As a matter of fact, in Philly, Texas, where the family detention center uh, that, that I visited is located, due to fracking that they had done over a number of years, you can't drink the water. So now that the fracking mm-hmm. is no longer being done and other, uh, you know, uh, the watermelon industry and farming industry have, you know, gone belly up, they were very happy that the detention center came because these folks really did need jobs. They really do need to stimulate their economy. Unfortunately, it's happening at the expense of immigrants. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's beautiful. May I? Hi, it's you again, and I'd like to interject something because I was hoping that there would be an opening for me to bring up James Baldwin. (laughs) And I think it just happened. I was thinking about the fire next time. And there is a description in the fire next time of the black worker who works for the white person who perhaps liberates some items from the home, and there's a silent complicity in that in recognizing that there is an imbalance of power and that, you know, you steal or you liberate items and you allow that to happen because you know, for, for example, you're exploiting the labor of the person who's cleaning your home. Similarly, in the immigration context, especially for many illegal immigrants, um, they engage in a kind of economy in which it's not manifested in the GDP, right? We know that they're working. We know they're working off the books. We know that they're perhaps using a Social Security number that pays into the economy, but they receive no benefits. And yet still there is a hostility towards them because they engage in the labor that most Americans don't want to engage in. So I'm hoping that you all can speak to a broader lens about the way in which this country both uses, disappears, and reviles the immigrant experience, particularly through the lens of women and men of color, because it feeds into the kind of white supremacy context in which this country functions under. And I can pull it back, and we don't have to go there at all. No, that's all. But that is mm-hmm. where my mind was going, and Leticia brought us there. So I am <laughs> so grateful for that. And on that note, Q is out. No, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome, Q. Absolutely. 
So who wants to take it? <laughs> <laughs> James Bald. Fire. All right. Did anybody have anything else to follow up on on the, the location or the access to council? Or did you want to move on to? You know what? I just want to ask really quickly because you mentioned the the last administration. So, um, you know, we we feel a certain kind of way about our former president, um, and we and we want to hold him in high regard. But we also know that there are some funky stuff that went on. Yeah. <laughs> and this mm-hmm. is definitely one of them. Right. Definitely. And so um I, I not that I, I wanna bring that up, but I'm curious to talk about when we talk about what happened under uh President Clinton and and following that, going through each presidency since that has has added some level of detriment to this system. And um, I just want us to acknowledge that we are now in a time where we see number 45 doing things um, really kind of out in the open, right? He's, yeah. he's a little bit more vocal about what what is going on. Um, and I think that because he's so vocal on this and so many other issues, that we're just pushing back. We're trying to push back on everything, um, but recognizing that there's been a lot that has come before that. My My basic question, though, is, in terms of who is paying for these private prisons, we know who's paying for them, but does the audience know who is paying for these private prisons? Because in, in, in state, it's taxpayer, it is taxpayer. taxpayer. We won't see cuts in this. I don't right? know like where the money is coming from. Sometimes I'll include some information about how much is being spent when I do bond motions because it's a lot. It's expensive. Um, it's expensive to house grown men, and it's more expensive, I think, to house toddlers. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, and these ICE contracts, you know, of course, they are funded by taxpayers, but it's definitely an approach um, that flows from the South's long history of looking at prisons filled mostly with people of color as a way to build their local economy. Right. It's another plantation. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that it also Absolutely. Not to drift subjects, but it also, now that we have this new education secretary, the same thing is about to happen with um, schools as well. Absolutely. Everything will be privatized. Well, people who will benefit are the people that make money off of poor people. Right. May I interject just to to bring it it back? I'm, I'm glad that 45 is at least bringing light to these issues. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, folks who were really unaware of what was happening in the immigration world they are woke. Are, they're right. woke. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're being awakened. They they are. I think mm-hmm. I, I've, I've, I've spoken with a number of people who were horrified to learn that we deport U.S. citizens sometimes. Right. Uh, whether that's an accident mm-hmm. or not remains to be seen, mm-hmm. but it happens. Or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, very surprised to hear that we have detention centers full of women and children, regardless of their quote, lawful status, quote, unlawful status, whatever, the, you know, the case may be detaining children? I've just had so many friends were unaware, and, and they were really quite surprised to hear about that. Yeah, I think that is, like, one positive, I guess, thing that has come out of all of this. The The crazy part to me is that this has always been happening, you know? It's definitely not at this level, I would say, but, like, 
what we see now, we've seen in the immigration world for quite some time. Um, so I'm glad that this is an opportunity for people to get educated and, um, like my colleague here said, get woke on this. Um, Lovett, did you want to add something? Um, no, I, I just, you know, during this time, um, which is a very concerning time uh, for so many people, um, I'm glad that people are becoming more aware of uh, what exactly is going on um, within our, um, our our administration and, and the, the types of, you know, um, policies that are impacting our communities. But it's also a good time where people are engaging um, around conversations around how to strategize around solutions, um, how to reinvest resources into our community um, and find an alternative. Can you give us some solutions, some policy solutions, and then after you're done with that, I believe Letitia has a question for you, a quick question for you. Okay. So what can people do? What can listeners do? What, how can we um, support immigration work right now? Um, I think one of the most important things is to contact your elected officials, um, to um, contact them and say to them, you know, voice your concern around these particular orders, these issues that are concerning our communities um, so that they are aware of um, where we stand as a community um, and also to, um, you know, to ask these cities to, you know, um, declare themselves as a freedom city um, or a sanctuary city um, that is, um, protecting our immigrant community um, and continues to be, you know, welcoming to um, that that population um, of people that are um, a part of our community. So um, aside from that, people can get in, in, engaged in their local grassroots organizations um, who are advocating and organizing for racial, social, and economic justice. Um, also, um, the... Um, Black Immigration Network um, has also put out a toolkit um, that can be accessed on blackalliance.org, um, a visitation toolkit um, that allows people to set up their own visitation programs to stay connected with those that are being detained um, and just um, helping to keep that relationship going. And it also helps um, in bond cases and, 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 case, and, and just helping to um, facilitate their cases. So, um you know, these are that's just really some of the things that people can do to yeah, just stay really connected you, and stay involved. Will you repeat the website again? Yes, absolutely. Um, the website is blackalliance.org. Great. Thank you. And I believe Leticia has a question for you real quick. I uh, wanted to touch base on what I believe is the most frightening, uh, horrifying, terrifying portion of the executive order regarding immigration. Detained and our priority if you have committed an act that constitutes a chargeable criminal offense, what does that even mean? Right. That is, that's not even right. probable cause or articulable right. suspicion. Do you have thoughts right. on that specifically? Um, I, it, it, it's just anything that they deem as suspicious or a reason to, um, you know, to detain you. I've seen people just jaywalking. Um, it could just be for the simplest, you know, um, Thing, um, criminal offense that people are being detained. And here in Georgia, we've been seeing a lot of uh, roadblocks. We've been seeing a lot of raids uh, where people, they're targeting particular communities um, for just the smallest infraction and, and detaining them. So, right, anything. Can it's be a black anything. hole. It, it can is. be anything. It, it, Absolutely. It can be anything. And it just encourages racial profiling. Absolutely. Um, which is a, 
Absolutely. Which is a big a big shame. Uh, Letitia, do you have Absolutely. any suggestions? What can what can folks who are listening do to help your work and um, maybe just be stronger advocates for immigration reform and immigrants? Uh, at this point, we're working towards uh, shutting down the family detention centers. Um, in the meantime, if you can give up your time or monetary, monetary donations, again, uh, the CARA Pro Bono Project. Um, other than that, we're just going to keep fighting to get these places closed down. All right. Mm-hmm. All right, so this is um, just a reminder that if you want to call in. Yeah, you can ask. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Um my first hosting gig, so bear with me. <laughs> um, so we're actually wrapping up now. Um, thank you all for listening. I just kind of wanted to get um, a last round of comments from everybody here um, with us today, um, maybe starting with uh, Lavette on the phone. Any last comments you want to say to the listeners? Um, my only last comment is to also lift up um, – you know, the fact that there is limited protection and accommodations to some of the most vulnerable detainees, including our elderly, disabled, and LGBTQ individuals. Um, so it's just very important as well um, that we are also lifting up um, those limited protections that are, you know, accommodating those vulnerable people. All right. Thank you. And thank you again for joining us for this um, program. We really appreciate your time. And can you also, Thank if you. people want to get involved with your organization, how will they find out more information about your organization? They can always go to blackalliance.org, which is um, Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Awesome. Letitia, did you have some closing comments? Um, I just wanted to say thank you very much uh, for having me here today. Um, and uh, one last plug for um, the CARA Pro Bono Project, please. Do visit their website, again, if you can. Um, oh, and one last thing. Um, they are always looking for attorney volunteers. No immigration experience needed. You need not speak a foreign language. Uh, all, all hands on deck. So please check them out. Wonderful. Thank you. We appreciate your passion, and you've definitely enlightened us. Thank you. Um, I'm just really glad that we were able to have this conversation. Um, I think right now, more than ever, it's, we need to stand behind the most vulnerable in our community. Today we saw the, you know, the skinny budget come out, and we saw that, again, it you know, leaves a lot of our vulnerable populations really exposed. So these conversations are very necessary. This, um, we're going through a tough time now, um, so I'm glad that we've, we were able to dedicate some time today to one of the most vulnerable populations, that being immigrants. Hi. Good evening, everyone. Once again, it's you, the lovable, lovable, angry black woman. And I want a tagline. time we ended our conversation, I said that the struggle is real. And this time, I want to remind everyone that the world is hostile right now. Right. And so even as we work hard to dismantle this aspect of a, of a system of oppression, um, we have to realize that we are still here. And what that means is no matter what is thrown at us as women of color, they can't take us out. No matter what they do, they can rape us, they can criminalize us, they can beat us, they can create tropes to make us into caricatures. 
But no matter what, we still hold true and move through the world as whole people. And we will not allow them to define us. But I will leave us with this quote from Zora Neale Hurston. If you are silent Mm. about pain, they will kill you and say you enjoyed it. Mm. If you Mm. are silent about your pain, they will kill you and say you enjoyed it. So the work that we do to take care of our brothers and sisters, regardless of where they fall under diaspora, is crucial and critical. Because 200 years from now, people are going to look back and say thank you for standing up. Ciao, ciao. Lovable, huggable, angry black. Ciao, ciao. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. And the only thing that I want to say is that we, in light of all that's been said, and particularly Q, uh, your last comments. It's all about me. Reflections on self care from a recovering superwoman. Thursday, April twentieth at seven. Traumatized, and we're going to help ourselves heal. Yes. Thank you. Good night. Can I listen to you, soon. Trina? <laughs> yes. And I, I, I just want to thank everybody. I'm, I am, even more reassured about why we're doing this. Every time we have a show, every time we have a broadcast, this is needed. Having a space to convene and to and to own the di- dialogue and to own the platform and to, to convene the voices as opposed to being set up as a point-counterpoint or to react to the news of the day. We are speaking our truth, and it's very clear that, as Q said, this is a hostile environment, and that's exactly why we set up the Power Network. And um, we have had shows. We had a show on Sunday about not the Women's March, but also the whole entire resistance movement that is happening right now. There was a show about race in America um, a week ago. This platform, the Revolutionary of the Diaspora, is one specific show that happens. And if you are out there listening and you have something to say and you think you might want to be on the air, you can actually have a show, too. So um, you can um, contact me if you want more information about the Power Network. My name is Trina, T-R-I-N-A, at mycoachtrina.com, and we will definitely share more information. But thank you, everyone, for participating. Thank you. This is a really important topic. And um, this same, if you if you enjoyed this broadcast, the same link you listened on is the same link that becomes a recording. So after we get off the air tonight, you can share this, share this information with other people, and continue to fight, continue to resist, because it does take all of us. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Thank you.